I was thinking back to when I first reported from my first duty station in South Korea when I was serving the army. And I came in and one of the first people I met was our battalion commander. And the battalion commander, when he saw me, he shook my hand and then he grabbed and then he turned and he looked at my left shoulder. And what he was looking for was a ranger tab to see if I had been through the army ranger school, this 10 week long training that teaches about small unit leadership. And I discovered he didn't just do it to me, he did it to every officer who came into the unit. Because for him, it was a mark, it was a symbol. If you had that ranger tab, must be a good officer. If you didn't, then he had a kind of derogatory term, which I won't repeat, for who you were for being tabless, for not having that outside external marker. But the reality is, that wasn't the only sign of what a good officer was. Just having a patch on your shoulder didn't make you a good officer. And that's in part what we see in our passage for today is this idea sometimes of external marks, that sometimes we have this image of what somebody should look like or what somebody should be based on an external marker. But we realize that the external marker isn't everything. So we're going through a series on the book of Romans, this book that's filled with lots of ideas, lots of images, and it's been talking, and the focus of it is on the gospel of God, this good news of what God has done and is doing through Jesus Christ to make the world right and to make us right through His sin through His life, death, and resurrection. And so we're seeing this picture of what it is. And so Paul opens, and so this man named Paul has written a letter to this church in Rome, and he's introducing himself, introducing his theology. He's dealing with the issues of division there. He's appealing to, for ministry aid, all kinds of things going on. And all at the center of it is he's saying there's this change that God is doing. There's something that God is doing, and we're calling it the gospel the good news. And so he introduces that in the beginning of chapter one of what this good news is of the work of Jesus Christ to make the world right. And it's the good news and it's a power. And then he begins to say, well, if we need this power, this salvation, what do we need salvation from? And so the end of chapter one, he introduces this, this group of people who are turning away from God. They're choosing their way over God's ways, exchanging the truth for a lie and as you're reading it, thinking of it like, yes, those are those people. What we talked about last week was Paul kind of sets people up because he's introducing, he's talking about them, them, them. And then all of a sudden in chapter two, he starts off, he says, and you. And he flips it and realizes that one of the central problems for the church there in Rome, and not just the church in Rome, but churches everywhere, is this issue of hypocrisy, of seeing the fault of others. And really, this continues on, what our passage for today continues on from last week. This issue of, of hypocrisy and God as an impartial judge. And here he picks up and he's saying, now you, if you call yourself a Jew. And so he's really focusing in on these people who are Jewish. And one of the things that I want to mention as we continue on with this is we need to be careful when we're reading our scripture and we have these references to Jews. Because sometimes we can begin to stereotype and we can fall into anti-Semitism. And these tropes about who Jews are and what they're like and we see this all over in our world today. It was just in the news in the last couple of weeks with Kanye or Yee or whatever, he, the rapper, musician, artist, talking about the Jews controlling the world through the banks and controlling the industry and people kind of falling in these ideas. And we can do the same thing often in the church. We can have this, this idea, this stereotype of what the Jewish people are like. And we can paint the Jews as the bad guys and us as the good guys. 
And we need to be careful to not read our Bible that way. And especially remember that Paul here is a, is a, Jew, is a Jew speaking to fellow Jews. But the main argument is he, he's making isn't about like, well, the Jews are bad and everybody else is good. He's making the argument here that he's made in chapter 1 and then in chapter 2 is we all need God's grace. There isn't anybody who's separate from that. But here in this passage in 17 through 22, he's speaking directly to the Jews. He's addressing their identity. Now, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law, if you know His will and approve His superior will, because you are instructed by the law, this identity they have. But then he talks about their mission. He says, if you are convinced you are a guide for the light, blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish. And these aren't just ideas that the Jewish people came along and said, well, I think maybe we'll make ourselves a light to the world. These are the words that God gave to them. When God called this nation Israel, when He spoke to a man named Abraham and said, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and then Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and He renames Jacob and calls him Israel, and He makes this great nation, one of the things He says again and again, He says, you will be a light to the world. In other words, God chose this people to show something. What's a light do? It exposes. It shows. He says, you are to be a light to the world. You are to show people what I'm like. You're also to show the world how to live. And so he's looking to the Jewish people in this congregation in Rome and saying, you're claiming this identity, you're claiming that you are a light to the world, but are you really doing that? He says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And so we hear that kind of same kind of language as last week, this hypocrisy, like, this group of people who's going around is like, don't steal, don't steal, and then put staking stuff and putting it in their own pocket. And so he's addressing them. He's saying, how can you be a light to the world? How can you do these things if that's what's going on? And he's getting at the way the Jewish people kind of have this pride. They're thinking, I mean, think about it. They have been told... They are God's chosen people. They are His special position, that they have a special mission. And there's a pride in that, and there's a rightful pride. A rightful pride saying, we are God's people. We're the ones who God has chosen. But He's also reminding them of their mission, and that this knowledge and mission is tainted by their hypocrisy. And we'll see this issue of hypocrisy keep coming up again and again, and we think about Hypocrisy is this thing that I said last week, seems to come up as an issue in the church a lot or to people outside the church. In fact, last Sunday night in Diggin, our little intergenerational group that meets on Sunday night, we talked about one of the stories that Jesus told. And this story of two men who go up to pray and one's a Pharisee. And he goes up and he prays and he says, oh, thank God I'm not like everybody else. And then somebody else comes up and says, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. In this picture of hypocrisy of this kind of, thank God I'm not like everybody else, and in the inability to recognize that you are like everybody else. And that's what Paul's getting at here is this tendency in religious people often to think, thank God I'm not like them. The tendency in religious people to sometimes preach to other people and tell them all the things they should not be doing and then fail to recognize it going on in our own lives. 
the people of God here are violating the law that defines their identity. God gave them a law and said, this is the laws to live by. This is how you are to live and to be my people. And they're saying, yes, that's us. That's who we are. We're God's people. And Paul's saying, but God's people are supposed to live in a particular way. And that's not how you're living. And one of the things that he gets to is this line. Maybe you missed it. He says, as it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, verse 24. This is that there are the consequences. Sometimes we think of the consequences of hypocrisy as like, oh, people just look down on us. And what Paul's getting at is the consequences of the hypocrisy is it tarnishes God's name. It's not just us who get tarnished, but it's God's reputation that gets tarnished. And so sometimes we think about our own bad behaviors, so our things we do, and we think, oh, well, you know, it's just, oh, I look bad, but it's actually affecting who God is and what people think about who God is. And then we bring that and say, well, well, that was the Jews, but we have the same mission. So Peter, in his letter, says in 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. The same language that God used to describe the people of Israel God's special possession that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. In other words, we have that same responsibility. Now we have been incorporated into God's people and we're being called to be a light to the nations. And so when we engage in hypocrisy, I know it doesn't happen often in the church, but when we do that, we're not just tarnishing the image of the church, we're tarnishing God's reputation. So I'm going to read these verses that were directed at the Jews and then think, does this sound like the church at all? You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Sound like us at all? Yeah. This tendency for the church, for Christian people to look and to be accusatory, to be quick to point the finger and show all the things that are wrong with the world and then not be able to look at ourselves and to see what's going on. And to realize that when we do that, we're dishonoring God. It's not just our, our reputation, because that's what we get concerned with sometimes is our reputation. How oh, people think they're bad me. But what Paul's inviting us to do is to consider not just our reputation, but more importantly, God's reputation. And to think about when we behave in a certain way, this is an effect on God's reputation. And so he continues on, and he begins to talk about circumcision, everyone's favorite topic in church. <laughs> you know, well, Pastor, well, I have a choice. I'm going to talk about hypocrisy or circumcision. Well, let's see, which one do we want to hear about today? But remember what circumcision was. For the people of God, it was one of the markers when God called Abraham back in Genesis 12, and they recounted again in Genesis 12, 17, or 12, 15, 17, and 22, and all these different passages in the book of Genesis, God makes a covenant with Abraham, a series of promises in which He engages in this, enters into this special relationship with Abraham. And one of the marks, primary marks of that covenant was the mark of circumcision. It was a sign of the covenant 
between them, a sign, a reminder of the promises between them. But what Paul gets at here, he says, circumcision has value if you observe the law. In other words, this external marker makes a difference if you follow the law, but if you break the laws, it's as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirement, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? In other words, you have this external marker. So which does God want? The person who has the marker but doesn't do what He wants, or the person who doesn't have the marker but does what God wants? And He's setting up this contrast, and what He's getting at is that external marker doesn't matter if you don't do what's right. So to go back to my original story, to wear a ranger tab, which was a mark of leadership and training, if the person wearing that tab didn't exhibit leadership, didn't exhibit sacrifice, didn't adhere to the ranger creed, then really what difference did a piece of cloth make on their shoulder? And in the same way, what Paul is getting at is for these people who are circumcised, you've got this mark that says you're in, you're part of God's people. But if you don't do what God wants, that mark doesn't matter. Who's part of the family? The one with the mark or the one who's keeping the law? For us, maybe we say, well, we don't follow that only, but we have our own marks, don't we? Maybe it's the mark of baptism. We had some people baptized a few weeks ago. That's kind of one of our, our, one of our central markers of being baptized. But if we're simply baptized and then don't choose to follow Jesus and do what He says, does that marker count for something? Or maybe it's, well, 1987 on October 5th, it was 9 p.m. and I got down on my knees and I said a prayer. And so I can claim that as my marker. See, I'm part of the family. I'm, I'm in with Jesus now because of that day. But if we're not following Jesus, if we're not doing what He calls, does the fact that I can hold up my card or I can tell about the day I walked down the aisle mean anything? Or we can say, look, I'm a member of Fruitland Covenant Church. We hold that up and as a marker of some kind. And so what Paul is getting at here is our tendency sometimes, the Jewish people did it, we do it now, is to say we have this external marker and to say, well, I've got the marker, I'm in. And Paul's saying, yeah, but the external mark doesn't have any value if you don't do what God wants you to do. You know, wearing the shirt doesn't mean you're part of the team. But then he gets on, as Susan alluded to, the heart of the matter here. He says, a person is not a Jew, this is verse 28, no, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. And so he gets to this new idea. He's saying, well, there was that old, but really what matters is what goes on in the heart, in the center of who we are. And this isn't a new idea with Paul. I'm going to read just a couple Old Testament passages. Deuteronomy 30, chapter 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love Him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. Or in Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Paul is pointing to what God's plan was from the beginning. That God would renew His people, but what God's people needed wasn't 
a mark to follow. What God's people needed wasn't simply some more rules to follow. What God's people needed then and what God's people need now is a change of our heart. Because on our own, we can't do what God says. And notice in both of those, who's doing what? It's God says, I will circumcise your heart. God says, I will put in you a new heart. God doesn't say, and in the future, people will try really hard and do what I say. No, He's saying that God will do this work in their hearts to change them, and we're going to continue on, and this is going to be a theme through the book of Romans. In chapter 5 and chapter 7, especially chapter 8, but especially in this passage, and we're going to come back to it, we're going to go a little bit more into chapter 3, but then come back into this key idea of the importance of the heart change. And so as Paul continues on in chapter 3, there's kind of like, well, wait a minute then. There's this imaginary conversation partner. He says, what advantage then is there being a Jew? I mean, is there any advantage? He says, yeah, there is. You were given the laws. You were entrusted with this. And again, the theme of the importance of the Jewish people in their place will come up in chapters 9 through 11. And kind of like what Susan was saying, if you just read the first verse and the last verse, you miss a whole lot in the middle. And the same with the book of Romans. Sometimes we want to just read, well, here's this stuff in chapters 1 through 3, and then I'm going to skip to chapter 9. You have to read the whole thing. And Paul keeps coming back to these ideas, and one of these is the importance of who God is. But one of the things that Paul shows here, he says, verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true. In other words, Paul is playing his cards. He's saying one of the key things is our faithlessness doesn't negate God's faithfulness. Because the question all along is, well, God chose these people, and they were supposed to be His representatives, and they're off doing all sorts of terrible things. God chose the church. He chose people, and they're supposed to be His representatives, but they're certainly not doing it. And what God's saying is, that doesn't negate His faithfulness. Just because we choose not to follow doesn't mean God doesn't. And then He kind of continues on, and He says, well, I mean, what's God like? I mean, It's kind of confusing, but what he's getting at here is he says, if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? In other words, God has given this incredible gift to us, and if God just gives gifts to like unfaithful people, is God really a just God? I mean, because that's not what we shouldn't give, we shouldn't give good gifts to people who are unfaithful. He's saying, no, God can still judge the world. And not only that, gets into this crazy idea, which will again come up later in Romans, like, well, you know, if us sinning demonstrates God's grace to the world, let's go sin, right? Because we want to teach the world about God's grace. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not how it works. But we're going to come back to that. So I want us to come back, though, to this idea of hypocrisy and some of those things and say, for us to consider as we kind of start wrapping up here is one is we're called to live a standard. And the question is, are we holding others to that and not living it ourselves? And it comes in many different ways. Sometimes it's in our selectivity in the ways that we call out sins. And I alluded to that last week is where each church, each tradition sometimes has certain things that we tend to zero in on, that we tend to narrow on and say, this is the big sins. 
And we often sometimes divide it up as like, these are the problems, and we use that language. We have, we have church, we have great language in church. The world, right? The culture. And we set up an us and them. David Fitch calls it the church of us versus them. Where we have our banners and we have our markers and we decide like, this is who we are. And one of the things that we begin to do is when we begin to develop the slogans and the banners, what those do is they separate us out from others. And so we begin as a church to have our banners that say, this is what we're against. And that means we're against them and there begins to be this division between us and the world. And so we start to call out certain things and begin to look and say, oh, look at how bad the world is. Look at how bad the culture is. And what Paul is inviting us to do here is to also begin to reflect on ourselves and to say, do we accuse the world of something? Do we accuse others of doing something that we do ourselves? Do we teach others but not teach ourselves? Says so you preach against stealing. Do you steal? You know, do we find ways? We say, well, no, we don't steal. We're not, we're not out robbing banks. We're not smashing. But are there ways we take things which don't rightfully belong to us? And do we find ways in some cases to justify the things that we do? No, I'm doing it for God, though. So, for example, one of the things... And I often talk about social media because I think social media is a sign, a picture, a window into much of our modern culture. It affects it. And one of the things that I often see is there's one biblical story that's often cited by people on social media is Jesus turning over the tables in the temple. And the the often cited because somebody decides that it's okay to rant against somebody, to call somebody names, to, to use violent language against somebody because they're wrong. And we say, well, but Jesus flipped over tables. They find this one story and it defines everything. And they use it as an excuse to justify hatred, to justify vitriol, to justify oftentimes blatant lies against people. And so it's finding ways for us to do those things. And speaking of lies, this is another one, again, in the category of social media and stuff, is to teach us, church, we need to be wise. We're going into an election season. Everybody give a big yay, men. <laughs> yeah, no. But, but one of the things in the election season is what we often do is we, we have candidates, and that's part of our gift that we have been given to us here in the United States of America is we have the right to vote and to go into the vote and this opportunity to elect the people that will lead us. And we have differences of opinions and we choose the leaders and we think the ones we want. But what we need to be careful of, people, is that when we share things about our candidate, about the other candidate, we need to be speaking truth. It's so easy to see that story, to see that headline and say, oh, man, I can't believe that that other guy said that, and just click share. Without taking just a few moments and to say, is that really what they said? I mean, how would you like it if you said something and someone said, oh, I can't believe what they said. Here's what they said. And they said, well, but, but that's not what I said. Or they pulled one phrase that you said out of context and used it to say something else. See, because here's something that 
we all should know, but a secret is Facebook, guess who we are when it comes to Facebook? We're the way they make money. We're the product. They're trying to get us and they're using us to make money. And one of the ways they make money is by you clicking on things. And when you see a boring headline that says something like, you know, you know this governor went down and, and, and helped out some people, you think, oh, that's, you know, that's not too exciting. But now governors say, you know, like, denied the rights of somebody. It's like, well, we click on those because anger, hatred, and there have been studies done that show exactly this, that the headlines that are the more inflammatory, the more angry, the more sensational are the ones that people click on more. I mean, I know that happens for me, probably doesn't happen for any of you, but I mean, what are the ones that you want to click on? Like, there's some articles, that's, like, that's a boring article, that doesn't say anything. Oh, but that article that says something bad about the guy I don't like, I want to read that one. Because I want to justify, I want to reinforce what I already believe. And it may happen that sometimes I read something and I see a, a headline about some story that's happening. It's like, oh man, I can't believe that guy did this. I'm going to share that with all my friends. But what I need to do is I need to go and find out, is that really what happened? Because if I don't, if I share something that is in fact a lie, that makes me a liar. And when I lie, I'm dishonoring God and who He is. We can say, well, look at all those, you know, the politicians, every time they open their lips, they're lying, right? And then we say, well, wait a minute. But every time I share one of these things, if I haven't checked, every time I post something and say, well, this is what the bill says this, and, you know, if you see something that says, here's this proposition, and the proposition if this proposition passes, this is what will happen. Is that what will happen or what might happen? Have you gone and read what the propositions actually say? And it may be the case. This isn't, I'm not saying that everything on social media is a lie. Only 99% of it. But no, the, I'm not saying that everything is and that everybody out there is, is propagating lies. But we need to be wise and think about the things that we say and the ways that we act and not simply say it's something we want to hold other people to but not hold ourselves to. And so what we need to think about is do we understand that our failure to embody the gospel, the good news of Jesus, has implications for our mission and for God's reputation? You know, think about how do we embody when it talks in Romans chapter 1, and it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because the power of God brings salvation to everyone. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So it's the righteousness, the justice of God, God's goodness, His holiness, His response to evil in the world. All those things are embodied in the gospel. And so the question is, how do we embody the gospel in the way we live? How do we embody the gospel in our fight for justice? How do we embody the gospel in the ways that we are true and right? And that word again, righteousness, has that kind of double meaning that we miss sometimes in our own language where it means both righteousness, both in terms of right actions, but also in terms of justice and justice in the idea of the way things are supposed to be and God making things right. And so we have to ask ourselves, 
when we live our lives and in the things we do, the things we say, are we embodying the righteousness of God? Because God has put us there. God has called us. Remember that passage from Peter? It says, you are a holy nation, a chosen people, a royal priesthood. We're called to embody the gospel. So we have to ask ourselves, in these choices that I make, in the ways that I shop, in the ways that I drive, in the ways that I treat people, in the ways that I, I live, in the ways that I vote, in all those things, am I embodying the righteousness of God? Would someone look and say, that's, that's the way the world's supposed to be? Or not? And so we are asking ourselves that. But ultimately, we return to that last theme of, and we're going to return back again and again to this, is that ultimately what we need to do all those things is a changed heart. That the only way to accomplish those things, because what I don't want us to leave here thinking is, well, I need to go out and try a little bit harder. I need to do better. It's true, but we can only do it through the power of God at work inside of us to change us. And that's what Paul is getting at here, and he'll get at much later again. He said, where he's saying, a person is one only, only by the, such a person's praise is not from other people or from God. He says, circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. It's only by the power of God at work inside of us that we can change, that we can be these people. The only way we can embody this righteousness, which goes back to chapter 1, which I just read, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation. God is the one who also changes and transforms us. The gospel is not simply an announcement of Jesus' work and things, but in that announcement, it brings the power to bring change inside of us. And so when God calls us to live and embody this, He doesn't say, okay, people, go be holy, go represent me. Good luck with that. But instead, He empowers us through His Spirit to live that life. And so that's why it's good news, because God doesn't simply call us to that, but then He also empowers us to live this life. He gives us the power to live that life. And so as we read through the book of Romans, and as we consider the hypocrisy in our own lives, as we consider God's call to embody the righteousness, let's remember that the God who calls us to live a righteous life is the God who changes our hearts. And so may we leave here today empowered by that Spirit, knowing that God is calling us, but God is also empowering us and writing it on our hearts so that we can, we can do what He has called us to. Amen.